For our scripture reading this morning, we're going back to that chapter of Luke's gospel that the service opened with. I trust you have a copy of the scriptures with you. It's Luke's gospel and the fifth chapter. And I'm reading from verse 17 down to the end of verse 26. The gospel of Luke, chapter 5 and verse 17. On one of those days, as Jesus was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. May the Lord be pleased to bless to us this portion of his word this morning. Before we come to the message, let us pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have preserved your word for us. And we thank you, our Father, for the privilege that is ours here to have copies in our own hands and to read in our own language and to be able to consider and to meditate upon the marvelous works of our living Lord. We thank you for these incidents recorded that encourage our faith, that stimulate our thinking, and that would direct our steps. We thank you for your word, our Father, that has been preserved for us. And we thank you for the gift of your spirit 
who comes to illuminate our minds and our understanding so that we might know the Scriptures. We thank you for the Spirit of God who has come to indwell your people so that we may be obedient to your word, so that we might see with our eyes, understand with our hearts, and walk humbly before you. And we thank you, our Father, that what you have done in the past, you do even today. For how amazing it was to see this man stand up again from being paralyzed. How wonderful it is to see sinful men and women, dead in trespasses and sin, stand up in newness of life. This marvelous miracle of grace. This miracle that so many of us here in this room have known. You coming to us, speaking to us, telling us to rise and go home. Our Father, we thank you for your mercies to us. We thank you for your great grace to us, for that love which we have been singing about this morning. And thus we come, our Father, to acknowledge you this day again. We come together that we might worship you together. We've been seeking to worship you all week, dear Father, privately, individually, seeking time to read your word, making time to call upon your name, seeking by the enabling of your spirit to walk before you each day, worshiping you because you have been good to us, you have kept us, directed our steps, provided for us, protected us in each way, and thus we come corporately to join our hearts together, to blend our voices together in praise and in thanksgiving, and as it were, to wait on you, to say, speak, Lord, in the stillness, while we wait on thee. Hush our hearts to listen with expectancy. And, O oh, our Father, as we, we come to you, we are also conscious not only of your great grace to us and your great kindness to us and your goodness to us, but we're also so aware of our sins and our transgressions that even since we last met, we have not loved you with all of our hearts. You have not always been on our minds. We have not always said things which have been gentle and kind and edifying. Forgive us, Art. Father, at times we've been grumpy, we've been angry, short-tempered, impatient. Forgive us, our Father, that we have sinned against you that we have fallen short once again of your standard of your glory. We confess our sin, but we do so, our Father, knowing that there is pardon for all our sins, because there is that blood of Christ that would cleanse us, and you are just, and that you are right, because of the work of your Son, to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. And so while we confess our sin, it is with that confidence that the blood flowed that brings cleansing from the deepest sin.
And so we thank you for the work of your Son for us. And Father, we come not only to worship you together, but to pray for one another. For those, our Father, who are facing trials and difficulties, who don't know which way to turn or which way to go, oh, Father, draw near to them and speak peace to their hearts and grant light and wisdom to their steps. For those, our Father, who are ill, hospital, or laid aside at home, we commend them to you. We thank you, our Father, that there's not a place where you cannot be found. And therefore we ask that as the great physician, you would come to those who need you in a very special, particular way. And that you would grant that healing touch. Restore them by your grace, we pray of you. For those that are traveling, that they may have joy in their hearts as they, as they travel and experience different things and see different things each day. And Father, for those who are serving you in far-off places, we pray that you would encourage them in the ministry, that they might know that their labor is not in vain in the Lord, but that you would anoint that ministry they're seeking to exercise that it will be to your praise and glory and be part of that, that great mission, that great mandate that would see those of every tribe and tongue and language and people and nation coming before the throne singing, worthy, worthy is the Lamb. So encourage faint hearts, we pray of you this day. And for those, our Father, who have anxious thoughts, hearts are burdened, we pray that you would speak to them, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so, our Father, we turn to your word. May it be a living word, a personal word, a particular word, a powerful word that would change us this day. For you have given to us your word that we may be transformed by it in the ministry of your spirit. So come, cause us to see him who said to this one, rise and walk. Forgive the sins of the one who speaks, for they are many. Grant that we may see no man and hear no voice, but that of the Lord God Almighty. And we ask it and we come in Jesus' name. Amen. The first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism that was written around the year 1646-1647 is this. What is the chief end of man? That is simply, why were we created? Why are we here on planet Earth? Why are you here? Why am I here? And the answer provided by the Westminster Divines was this. We are here to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. In recent years, some have replaced the and with a by, meaning that, that man's chief end, the reason for our existence, 
is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. By enjoying Him forever. That as we enjoy God, we glorify God. When we are satisfied with God, then we exalt our God. And that historic question and answer finds support from that prayer that Jesus taught his disciples and that portion of God's word that we have been considering over past Sunday mornings. I refer to the Lord's Prayer, as we call it, and recorded for us by Matthew in his gospel, the sixth chapter, from verse 9 through 15. You have your Bibles. Come back with me to that portion of God's word this morning. Here we come to this prayer that Jesus was teaching his disciples. And what was the, the, the primary petition of this prayer? Well, it's given in these words. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Here's the primary point. Here's the passion of the prayer that that our Father may be honored and reverenced and glorified world without end. And so, how can that be accomplished? Well, the rest of the prayer actually answers that question. Our Father's name will be hallowed by his kingdom coming, by his will being done, by him giving to us our daily bread, and by him forgiving us our debts. Through those means, our heavenly Father is glorified. He is glorified as we enjoy the food he daily gives to us. And he is glorified by that experience we know of the forgiveness that he grants to us. So what application can be made from this fifth petition this morning. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who sin against us. Well, the first element in redemption is the forgiveness of sins. And therefore, forgiveness is embodied in the gospel of Christ. This is my first point this morning. Forgiveness is embodied in the gospel of Christ. So what is the gospel? The gospel is the message of the word of God. How did Paul explain the gospel? 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, 
that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Here are the essential elements that relate to the gospel of Christ Jesus. Here are the essential elements of that good news. Christ died, Christ was buried, and Christ rose again. And each of those elements accords with the the, the central message of the Bible. Because this message was a message that had been promised and proclaimed and prophecy in the Old Testament. You see, the, the Old Testament is made up, basically, uh, our Jewish scholars would tell us, of three parts. There's the law, and then there are the Psalms, and then there are the prophets. In the books of the law, we read of the demand for Christ's death. The words of Leviticus 17, 11. In the Psalms, we see depicted the death of Christ. I'm thinking of Psalm 22 and verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then in the books of the prophets, we hear declared the death of Christ. And one only has to read the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. And so it was when Matthew came to write his gospel in order to prove that Jesus was the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, he constantly referred to the Old Testament scriptures, declaring, it is written, it is written, pointing his Jewish readers back to their own scriptures. So what is the gospel? It's the message of the word of God. And thus it is a message about the ministry of the grace of God. Now what is grace? I'm sure many of you here this morning We know that uh, little explanation, taking the letters that make up our word grace, G-R-A-C-E, great riches at Christ's expense. That's what grace is, great riches at Christ's expense. And what does that grace look like? Listen to the words of 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that by his poverty we may become rich. He who was the son became a servant. He who wore a crown exchanged it for a cross. And he who was to be obeyed became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. So what is grace? 
It's God's unmerited and undeserved favor to sinful, rebellious men and women. What is the gospel? How does Paul put it in Ephesians chapter 2? For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourself. It's a gift of God. Not of works. Lest any man should boast. So what is the gospel? It's the message of the greatest rescue mission this world has ever seen. That when all was sin and shame, when all there was was ungodliness and unrighteousness, darkness and depravity, hopelessness and hell, God in his grace sent forth his son. And so the gospel is also about the mercy of a pardoning God. You see, what is said in this fifth petition of this prayer? Forgive us our debts, our trespasses, our sins. Now, the Bible uses various terms in order to try and help us see something of the, the true nature of sin. My sin and your sin. You can turn, for example, to David's confession recorded for us there in Psalm 51. And David employs a number of terms there to describe that sin which he had committed. In verse 1, he speaks of it as my transgression. What are transgressions? The word suggests rebellion, self-assertion. We make ourselves the, the, the center of the universe and we're antagonistic to anyone, including God, who would try to take ourselves away from being the center of our lives. Transgression is rebellion against God. In verse 2 of that 51st Psalm, David then therefore speaks also of my iniquity. Iniquity. A word that conveys the idea of something that's twisted, something that's wayward, something that's been bent out of shape. We have, due to sin, faulty characters. And thus, we have faulty conduct. You see, we've been twisted out of shape. There's a fatal flaw in our character. And therefore, we make fatal mistakes. We seek to exalt ourselves rather than God. And then in verses 2 and 3 of that psalm, he does simply speak about my sin. And that word denotes failure, missing the mark. 
We have deviated from the goal for which we were created, and so we have squandered our destiny. Rather than glorifying God by enjoying Him, we have deposed God, and yet still try to enjoy ourselves. In verse 4, David speaks of evil. That what we do by sinning is but the fruit of an evil heart. And the Bible says all have sinned. That is, each one of us here in this room have an evil heart. And we have all alone sinned against God. You see, my dear friends, Every sin, every form of sin, be it transgression, iniquity, evil, every form of sin, be it gossip, be it greed, be it godlessness, be it grumpiness, however you define or describe whatever form your sin takes, Every sin we commit is a shaking of our fist in the face of God. It's not simply that which we commit against one another. Yea, we do. But we must realize, my friend, every sin is first and foremost a fist in the face of God. And yet, says our Lord, in our prayer, forgive our debts, indicating a further truth that we all owe something to God, that we're all under obligation to God, for we have not given back to God the love that is due him. We have not rendered to him that perfect obedience required by him. We have not offered to him the worship suitable to him. And yet for all of that, Jesus would teach us to come to the Heavenly Father and ask for forgiveness. And why? Because that is what the Son of God purchased and procured for us. A forgiveness through His blood that flowed at Calvary. A forgiveness so perfect, a forgiveness so powerful that if applied, puts our sin, as has been described, out of sight. Because the prophet, speaking as an instrument of God, says God casts our sins behind his back. And that our, 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 he puts our sins out of mind because he tells us, I will remember them. No more. No more. Has God got a forgettery? Does God, what, what's it mean? I will not remember them anymore. 
You know, we, we talk about forgiving and forgetting. What does, what does that mean? What does it look like? Do you forget? And it's always... It means he will never bring it up again. He will never bring it up again. Not like us. Eh? Somebody does something against us. Somebody says something against us. Something hurts us somewhere. What do we do? We look for another opportunity just to remind them, to stick the dagger in, to remind them what they did to us. We bring it up again, not God. He never brings them up again. Out of sight, out of mind, out of reach, cast into the depths of the sea. And so what did Paul write to the Ephesians? In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. So what is the message of the gospel? It's a message about pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. It's a message about the Son and Savior who through his sacrifice can deal with our sin, removing our guilt and cleansing our conscience, making us right with God. So I wonder this morning, have you ever asked for that forgiveness that you so surely need? Have you ever genuinely prayed this prayer? Not just as a liturgy, but as something personal. Father, forgive me my debts. Well, let me put it this way. Have you been to Jesus for that cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Remember the Bible reading I took in Luke chapter 5? That man who was uh, brought by friends to Jesus. Why were they bringing him to Jesus? What did they want? He was a paralyzed man. They, want, they wanted him to be healed. They'd, they'd heard about Jesus, this, this healer. They, they brought this. This was the thing upon their mind. This was upon their heart. This was their compassion. They brought this man because he, he needed healing. They went to these great lengths to lead him down through the roof to Jesus to, for healing. But what did Jesus say to him? Your sins are forgiven you. Can't you see the amazement on their looks? The Pharisees and scribes talked amongst themselves, but even the friends. What's, what's this forgiveness business? Why did Jesus say that? Why was that put first? Because your spiritual health is far more important than your physical health. You will lay your body down sometime, but you are going to live somewhere forever. Your spiritual health, the forgiveness of your sin, is more important than your self-image, than your popularity, than your talent, whatever it is. Forgiveness, Jesus is teaching here, the lesson here is this. Forgiveness is the primary thing. Forgiveness is the essential thing. Forgiveness is the message of the gospel. Forgiveness is embodied in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then I want you to notice, secondly, this morning, that forgiveness is essential to our growth 
in Christ, to our growth in Christ. You see, as long as we are in this world, we sin. We sin. Anyone, says the Bible, who says he has no sin is a liar. He's a liar. And the truth is not in him. While the fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins is there for our initial cleansing, it is also the fountain to which the Christian constantly returns. Hence the petition, Father, forgive us our debts. In the words of Professor John Murray, it is at the cross of Christ that repentance has its beginning. It is at the cross of Christ that it must continue to pour out its heart in the tears of confession and contrition. The way of sanctification, the way, if you like, of the growth of the Christian is the way of contrition for our sins. And yet, sadly, today's Christian culture makes little of that. The message today is one of self-worth, self-image, self-awareness, self-attainment. But biblical growth is characterized by the owning of our true condition. The owning of our true condition. We are to own the words of Genesis 6-5. That every intention of the thoughts of our hearts is only evil continually. The words of Jeremiah 17-9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The words of Romans 7-14. O oh, wretched man that I am. My friends, what characterizes the presence of God amongst his people? What do we glean from history, from biblical history, and from church history? When, when, when God, as it were, comes again to, to, to his people, what what what, what happens? What was read to us right at the opening of the service was lovely to have that reading. Peter, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. What happened when John, the Isle of Patmos, is confronted by the resurrected glorious Christ? John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. My friends, when, when God comes to his people again, the music stops. The clapping is silenced. All you hear and all you see and all you feel is reverence and an overwhelming sense of awe and a cry of confession. You want revival? That's revival. 
Hands not being lifted in praise, but hands and a sense of a protection against this holy God. Man on his face before the triune God. That's what happens when God comes. How did the hymn writer put it? My sinful self, my only shame. My glory, all the cross. Our sense of sin sends us to God for forgiveness. And thus forgiveness is an element of fellowship with God. Beloved, the holiest of saints have been the humblest of saints. And so the lesson surely is this. Stop turning to yourself. Stop trusting in yourself, your ability, your learning, your talent, your position. We look to Christ alone. We trust in him alone. We hope in him alone. And we seek by the Spirit's enabling to be like him alone. My dear Christian brother and sister, Young or old, spiritual growth comes by an increasing awareness of our sinfulness, the owning of our true condition, which then leads to the making of a true confession. The making of a true confession. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, but have you ever asked yourself the question, how do you confess? What, what characterizes confession of sin? Beloved, our confession needs to be specific. Specific. How often our confession of sin is simply the, the thoughtless repetition of this fifth petition. We just say, yes, God. Father, forgive me, for I have sinned. We appeal to the fifth position. We voice it, and so quiet in our conscience. We've done what we're told to do to make confession. So we confess, and so we move on. But my friends, we sin specifically, and so we must confess them specifically, naming them, you know, like our blessings, count them one by one, then repent of them, each one, because if you don't, you'll do it again and again and again. Be specific, and yet a word of caution, for while we seek God's grace to own them and to remember them, don't explore them or think too long on them, lest you repeat them in your mind. You play it over again. There are steps in confession. Remember them, repent of them, and then rejoice that in God's faithfulness he has removed them. The element of confession 
We are to be specific. And let me add another. Be strategic. Be strategic. Do you notice how Matthew 6, 12 begins this prayer? What's it begin with? It begins with the little word and. And. Signifying that our prayer for daily provision is to be linked to our prayer for daily pardon. To put that another way, as we daily seek food from God, we are also daily to seek forgiveness for God. You know, I couldn't help but think, and wasn't it Daniel who prayed three times a day? And I thought, most of us have three meals a day, don't we? Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Three times a day, we should give thanks to God for his provision. And three times a day, we should keep short accounts with God and make confession. When we say thank you at the table, we remember also our need of forgiveness. Keep short accounts with God. Because failure to confess our sin leads to hardness of heart about sin. So forgiveness is embodied in the, the gospel. Forgiveness is part of the Christian's growth. And then thirdly and finally, forgiveness is the evidence of our grace from Christ. Forgiveness is the evidence of our grace from Christ. What do I mean? Well, let me give you an explanation and then an example. You see, as you go on in Matthew 6, you go on to verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. These words have been interpreted in a very mechanical way. So what is meant by them? You see, it's, it's, it's suggested at times that if, if you forgive others, then the Heavenly Father will forgive you. That his condition, his forgiveness of you, is conditioned upon your forgiveness of others. Quid pro quo. A favor is granted in return for something. But while there is a connection here, it is not a connection of works, it's a connection of grace. You see, you can break this, this petition, this fifth petition, into five little points. Number one, the truth is God has graciously forgiven us through the blood of his Son. Number two, being forgiven, we forgive others by God's enabling grace. Number three, if we fail to forgive others, we are showing that we know nothing of having been forgiven ourselves. Number four, forgiven people, that is, graced people 
are forgiving people, they show that grace they have received. And so number five, our forgiveness of others is not the condition for us to receive forgiveness, but it is the confirming fruit of God's grace to us and proof that we belong to God's family because forgiveness is a family trait. Forgiveness is a family trait. If we refuse to forgive, it's but a sign that we know so little about having received forgiveness ourselves. And if you want to explore that thought, let me ask you to read Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. How often must I forgive my brother? And look at how Jesus answers that. We who have been graced by forgiveness are to demonstrate that grace by forgiving. And so, an example... And I, I close with this. I want to tell you a true story written by a dear friend of mine, Dr. Raksa Hin. Raksa is a Cambodian. And he tells his story in his own words. So forgive me as I read it to you this morning as I bring the message to a close. These were the words of Raksa. During the years 1975 to 1979, the once beautiful and prosperous country of Cambodia became a killing field when two million innocent Cambodians died of starvation, disease, overwork, or execution by the hands of the Khmer Rouge. Thirteen members of my family, including my parents, were brutally executed. I was hit from behind and fell into the grave on top of my father. Other bodies fell on top of me. The soldiers hacked wildly at us, but in their frenzy, they missed me. They assumed everyone was dead. The soldiers went off to find other victims, leaving the grave open. When I gained consciousness, I could taste death. Blood flowed from my mouth and nose. And after about half an hour, I managed, though I was very weak, to move out from under the dead bodies. For several days, I stumbled around in the jungle before I wandered back into my home village. Amazingly, the people welcomed me, touching and hugging me and speaking consoling words to me. A few years later, I was able to locate my only surviving sister, and one of my aunts and her family, and I went to live with them. But I wanted to get away from Cambodia, and so in 1984, I ran away to a refugee camp on the border of Thailand and eventually to Canada. I arrived in Canada in 1989 at the World Vision Center, a place that seemed like heaven to me. So many Christians took me to their hearts, they showed me Christ's great love, a love that had taken him to a cruel death on a cross to pay the price for my sins. He was the sinless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
This was all new and, and wonderful to me. It touched my bruised and broken heart and helped to restore my soul. I knew I would never be alone again, for Jesus himself would walk with me. After completing a bachelor's degree at Tyndale University College and a master's degree at Providence Theological Seminary, I settled down to a new life in Canada. And then in 1996, I was faced with a major decision to return to Cambodia and teach at the Phnom Penh Bible School. I wondered how I would cope. Returning to Cambodia forced me to admit that I had been denying the existence of anger and bitterness in my life. Even as a Christian, I had consciously nurtured my personal inner vengeance against my family's killers. I found it hard to forgive because, according to my justice, the killers were the ones who deserved to die, not my family. Furthermore, I found it hard to forgive because no one had yet asked for forgiveness from me. I longed to hear the tormentors admit what they had done was wrong and that they repented of the evil that they'd done to my family. Ultimately, my ability to forgive was birthed out of an awareness of the grace of God in my life. God had forgiven me without any initiative from me. He sent his son to die for my sin, something I did not deserve. And Christ taught we should love our enemies, do good to those who hit us, bless those who curse us, and pray for those who ill-treat us. I realized that forgiving my family's murderers was the only way I could make room for God's love to purify my heart and the root to praise and glorify him with joy. To make my mission of forgiveness complete, I decided to journey towards reconciliation with my family's killers. I asked two pastors to travel with me, for I desperately needed their emotional and moral support. In my heart and in my eyes, I had already forgiven my family's killers, but coming to face them was another matter. The village was a long way from town, and most of its residents were former Khmer Rouge soldiers. I realized that they, like me, were broken Cambodians who needed to hear the message of salvation, the love of Jesus Christ, just as much as I did. When we arrived in the village, I learned that four of the six killers had been killed in the war, and only two men had survived. One still lived in the village, and the other had moved away. The pastors and I met for three hours with my family's killer. I gave him a scarf, a symbol of my forgiveness for him, my shirt, a symbol of my love for him, and a New Testament as a symbol of my blessing for him. As we left, I gave him a hug and said, by the grace of God, go in peace. May God bless you, and may the spirit of fear subside in you. On a substantial trip, I was able to meet with the second person, since it's very unusual for Cambodian people to say, I'm sorry, I did not expect an apology. But unlike the first person, this man said, I feel absolute regret for all I did to your family. Please forgive me this terrible wrong. These words deeply touched my heart. I was able to tell him 
that God is full of compassion, that he teaches us to love, not to hate, to forgive, not to take revenge. And that is the power of God's love that melts hearts and takes away the hatred inside the soul. Forgiveness, says dear Axa, is a very personal discovery. This discovery led me down a painful road, but beyond the pain, it helped me to see the beauty of life. It helped me look at my scars and know that I am healed. In choosing to obey God, I have reaped a harvest of peace and joy, just as after heavy rain, we see the beauty of the rainbow. I've had the joy of being in that village with Raxa. For not only did he express his forgiveness and love in Christ to these two men, but he raised enough money to build a school in that village. And I've stood in that one of those classrooms, singing with those Cambodian children, those old songs we used to sing as kids, you know, that uh, Noah built his ark, and wide, wide is the ocean. And, st and they're singing with these kids, and realizing, because of forgiveness, here are the grandchildren of those killers, singing and learning about the Lord Jesus Christ. Forgiveness is embodied in the gospel of Christ. Forgiveness is essential to our growth in Christ. And forgiveness is evidenced from our grace that has come from Christ. And so may the one who searches hearts and minds hear from us the words of this fifth petition and see the reality of that position, the reality of that prayer being evidenced in our lives as we forgive one another. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for daily food. And yet teach us, our Father, not just to say empty words, but from the depth of our heart, be able to say, forgive us our sins as we've forgiven the sins of those who've sinned against us. Thank you for your grace to us. But grant that it may be amazing because it transforms us into those who also forgive. That we may show by our words and works that we belong to the family of God, a family that doesn't hold grudges, that remembers sins no more. Grant us such grace, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.